Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> Glad you're here this morning. Uh, it's our third week of Advent. It's the season in which we gather and we celebrate Christ's first coming, but we also look forward to His return. There's always this component. As, as we are here, we are waiting. We, we, are not, we are not simply looking forward to tomorrow. We are were, we were, we were looking forward to the return of our King. He came and is coming again. And, and we celebrate that every year around Christmas as we remember that Christ was born. And today, <clears throat> to this point, we have, we've talked about hope, that confident expectation, that, that certainty in, in what is to come, that, 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 that the hope that doesn't disappoint. We've, we've talked about that. We, we opened the series with that. Then we turned and we talked about his love, not love that's based on us, not love that's built in, in, in what we can do, but who he is in his very nature. It's rooted in him and, and what he has done and what he has promised to do. And we must be clear. There's no, there's no chance of in, of hope. There's no chance of receiving hope without Jesus. There's no chance of love without Jesus. If these become an end in themselves, we will always fall short. We, we can manufacture simple and, and, and really pitiful substitutions, imitations, replacements. We can, we can put things in their place as we seek to find better days and as we seek to find love in this world. We can certainly replace it, but it will never fulfill the promises God has given us. Never. These things, these, these, these are base desires that every one of us have, these, this hope and this love. Base desires that every one of us long to enjoy. And they only come in Christ. They only come with Christ. And today as we turn our attention to our third week and, and, and the gift that comes with Christ, the gift of joy, is no different. We will only know happiness in Christ. We're going to be studying from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. If you've got a Bible, you're welcome to turn there. And joy and happiness, like love and hope, it, it is completely only ever found in Christ. We can manufacture substitutes. We, we, can, we can gather up uh, things that, that make us feel happy for a moment. We can, we can, we can commemorate occasions that make us and others feel happy. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking right now of a friend that graduated yesterday. There's a moment that, that you feel happy. But this morning as he spoke, I don't feel any different. Because this, this, this kind of graduate achievement of something, it, it brings a moment of happiness, but, but it doesn't sustain us in happiness. We can, we can achieve certain things. We can cause others to feel happy for a little bit. But every little bit of happiness that we produce will eventually let us down. will eventually come to an end. It's like the, it's like the night of drinking. And, and partying. At some point, you're going to wake up with a hangover. And you're going to feel disappointed. Makes me think of the song by, I think it's Cheryl Crow. I don't know why song lyrics have been going through my head these last couple of weeks, but it makes me think of the song lyrics by Cheryl Crow. Uh, if it makes you happy, it, it can't be that bad. I think this is how good the chorus goes. If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. But if it makes you happy, why the hell are you so sad? Why are we so sad? If, 
If, if, if we really are living in a culture that's all about happiness and the pursuit of happiness and finding happiness, and, 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 and we have more opportunity for that probably than anybody else that has ever lived. We have achieved levels of comfort and entertainment. Why the hell are we so sad? Well, I think Isaiah gives us an answer to that question. And that's ultimately what we'll study today. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 through 7. Let's read it. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. You see the contrast there. It was contempt, and now it's been made glorious. The, the, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, who's, who dwelt in a land of deep darkness. On them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. The re, they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In his commentary on this passage, Ray Ortland <clears throat> points out that this phrase, this last phrase in this last verse, uh, verse 7, he points out that the weight of this passage rests on that phrase. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's work, but it's not a drudgery to him. He's not considering it something that I just got to get this done. It's his zeal. He's zealous for it. He's passionate about it. He's enthusiastic about it. He's, and he's, he's engaging in it with, with enthusiasm. He's longing to accomplish it. This is his work to do this. It, it's his work to accomplish what he's promised here. It's his work to ensure that it comes to pass. But what exactly is it that he's going to do? What exactly is he saying that he's going to do? Well, that's what we need to know. I think you can, I think you can already sense it. I think you can, you've already been given a hint that this is a passage that's just bubbling over with hope and with joy, with hope and, and, and happiness. It, it, it can't contain it. it, it just flows out of it. But when you put it back in the context, when you look at it in its context, you begin to see, you begin to see what could have been, what should have been, but what God has brought to be. And, and, and you see that really beginning in verse one of chapter nine, but 
depending on what, what translation you're reading, it could say nevertheless. And that's one of those words, when you're reading the Bible, it's one of those words you need to stop and pay attention to. When you come to the word but, or the word nevertheless, or it's kind of like therefore, you got to stop and you got to think about the context that the passage is sitting in, what's come before, so that you can understand what's coming after. It gives us, this word gives us a contrast. It gives us a, a different perspective of what's being presented already or what's been presented already. And, and so really we need to, we need to get a glimpse of what's, what's happening in chapter eight. And I think we can do that just real quickly, just by, by knowing what the last verse of chapter eight says. It says in verse 22 of chapter eight, they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom. You, you, you can hear the same language. There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. You, you can see what, what God is doing and it, it's distinct. It's different than what was and what had been and, and what should be. God is about to do a work. Isaiah, by the, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is about to prof- prophetically pronounce a new thing, a, a glorious and joyful and hopeful thing. What was was darkness and anguish and, or anguish and, and gloom. But, chapter 9 begins, nevertheless, chapter 9 says, what is about to be expressed is in stark contrast to what has been. And we see it in verse 1, the removal of gloom and anguish. How often do you recognize that we probably feel gloomier than, than, than we ought? Don't, don't, you think, don't, don't you think it's strange that in a, in a time and place that has so much, uh, so much advantage in the world that we should be less depressed? That, that we should be less sad? God is promising the removal of gloom and anguish, the the sadness and and distress. He goes on in verse 1 and he he refers again to the glory instead of contempt. He brought contempt. But out of that, instead of that, He is bringing glorious light. Verse 2, light shining into and driving out the darkness. Do you see the hope that's radiating out of this? Do you see the, the sense of joy that's bubbling up out of this? The, the happiness that's available in, in God's work and by God's hand? Verse 3, the provision of a great harvest. Who's not excited when everything goes right and the fruit that is born out is, is, is more than we could have imagined and, and, and the, the results of our efforts are, are, are exponentially surprising to us. We all celebrate at that. That all makes, that, that makes all of us happy. But this is more than that. This is the work of God. Verse four, the overturning of oppression. Verse five, the eventual end of all war. All the garments of war, he says, every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel. It will be ended. It will be put to an end. It will never exist again. It will be burnt up, never to be again. War and, and, and strife and, and, and difficulty will be put to rest and will be put away. This is what he's prophesying. He's singing his praise to God. 
this is the work that God is zealously about doing. This is the work that He enthusiastically engages in. Do you know that? Do you know? Do you know that as important to God as His own glory is, is your joy? As important to God as being glorified, it's just as important that you have joy. Do you know that? The reformers understood the Those that have come before us understood it. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It's the Westminster Confession. I mean, that's, that's what we were created for. See, for God, these two things are intrinsically woven together. They can't be separated. They cannot exist on their own. For God to be glorified, when God is glorified, His people will be given joy. Our joy is a result of experiencing His glory. The greater we see His glory, the more we see Him exalted and and, and lifted up, the more we will experience a deep and abiding joy. He is working to this end. He is striving for this result. It's His work through Jesus Christ that He is passionately pursuing that provides us great and abundant joy even as we wait and we hope for the day that all these things will come to fruition. You see, here's the thing. As we, as we gather at Advent, as we gather at Advent, we, we talk about hope and, and we have this hope that sustains us that will be fulfilled in some day to come. And we're able to, we're able to enjoy that hope. That, that hope brings happiness. You see, we're not left waiting to be happy. We're left with hope that we can be happy now. We can know joy now. This is the work that God is doing through Christ. But do you believe that? Do you know that? I think here again we're, we're confronted with our greatest problem, our, 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 one of our greatest issues. We look, we look to the world around us. See, like Israel, and, and by, by, by way of example, Israel in, in chapter 8, verse 22, is, is, is looking to the earth. They're, they're looking to the things of this world, and, and that's, that's true of every one of us. We look to the world, and, and sometimes we're, we're willing to accept empty sentiment. We're willing to accept something just based on nothing. And so we play songs like Pharrell Williams and his happy song, and it's talking about being happy, but it never gives you the reason why he's happy. It just says, I'm happy. Why? Look around. There's plenty not to be happy about. But it's an upbeat song, man. It makes you feel good. It gets your heart pumping. But, but what happens when the song ends? Man, again, I don't know. I'm, maybe I'm becoming a worship leader. Yeah, I think you would. <clears throat> what happens? It's empty sentiment. But some of us are beyond that. Some of us are brighter than that. We recognize that, that happiness isn't just something that exists existentially, right? It's, it's bigger than that. It's more, more than that. It's, it's, it's got to be more substantial than that. And so we look for happiness in accomplishments, 
and the things that we can, the things that we can do and, and the things that we can achieve and the things that we can accumulate in, in the things of this world. You see, here, here, here's the problem. We always look for things that make us happy, but every one of us, every one of us on our own are too short-sighted to really know what would ultimately make us happy. So we pursue a moment in time. For some of us, it's a moment that's now. And for some of us, it's a moment to come. But we will always set our sights too low. And because we do, we walk in darkness. But there's something more. Until we believe that, we'll be stuck in this, in this, in this tragic, this gloom and anguish of I will be happy when mentality and language. I will be happy when I get the right job. I will, I will be happy when I get the right spouse. Or if you got the spouse, when the spouse starts to act like I expect him to. I will be happy when I live in the right house. Or maybe the right neighborhood. Because I really want to be happy when I achieve the right social standing. I will be happy when I have the right number of kids or when my kids are grown and I don't have to take care of them anymore. It was like a big day in my house when the boys didn't have to be taken care of on Saturday mornings. It's like, whoa, that feels so good. They got their cereal, they watched their cartoons. I will be happy when I get the approval I think I deserve. When I'm finally recognized for all my efforts, I will be happy. I will be happy when I blank. You see, the reality is sitting in this room, there's, there's any number of things that we pursue for happiness. You fill it in. What are you pursuing? What are you looking to? What on this earth do you think will make you happy? Nothing. Let me just, let me just tell you, let me just answer that for you. Nothing. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes, what Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors was the idea that they could be like gods. They could set up on their own as if they had created themselves, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside God. Apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history. Really, since Genesis chapter 3, all of human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery all in a pursuit of happiness because we want to be happy as our own God. The long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. The reason why it can never succeed is this. God made us 
invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God, I love this, God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. Our history, just like Israel's history, has been marked in a pursuit of happiness apart from God. And it leads to, to, to anguish and to gloom and to darkness. Christian, it's time that we quit seeking to be happy when A or B happens, but instead find our joy in the work that God has done through Jesus Christ. Our joy is the result of God's work in Christ, not the result of our efforts aligning in the right set of circumstances. We will only ever experience this kind of happiness and as a result of God's work. It's not, not, not a result of what Israel or we can do, but not, not even what we deserve. But it's a result of what God has done what God is doing and what God will accomplish. And Isaiah breaks it out. I, I wish we had time. There's so many different angles that we could approach this from, so many different things that we could draw out. But I just want, I, I just want this morning just to show you that this is God working on your behalf to make you happy. This is God's work to reveal His glory and to demonstrate or, or to give you joy. This is what He is doing. And so let's just work our way through these verses. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In former time, he brought contempt. Notice, he brought contempt. This is God doing this. this, He's the one bringing it. There's no other reason that contempt should be in existence except that we have fallen short of him, that we have deserved judgment from him. He brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea. See, what's happening here is Isaiah is drawing from what has happened and what will happen. He's, he's looking to the past to know the future. He's, he's seeing what God has done and what God will do. And he's talking about Zebulun and Naphtali. And, and if you know the history of what's happened there is that Assyria, they were the nations through which Assyria came and, and, and invaded Israel. They were the, on the northernmost border. So, so it's, it's, uh, uh, Naphtali sits at the top and Zebulun sits right underneath it. I think that's the way. I'd have to go back and look at a map. But anyway, they, they, they sit right on one on top of the other. And, and, and the way that Assyria comes into Israel is through these two nations. And they, 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 they're, they're the reason, in part, because they couldn't stand. In part, they're the reason why Assyria is, is able to invade. Because they weren't strong enough to hold them off. In fact, it, 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 it came to be known as such a thing. It came to be known as such a thing that in John chapter 7, as, as, as the Jewish people refer back to this area, to this region in Galilee, they, they think of it with contempt. And in John chapter 7, they, they even say, how could a prophet, no prophet is ever said of Scripture coming out of, of, of Galilee. It's the same area. Zebulun and Naphtali are, are, are Galilee. 
They're in part Galilee. But God tells us something different. Not only did he bring contempt, but out of this area, out of this region, he is bringing glory, his glory. He is making his glory known. And we know this because when Matthew writes his gospel, and when Matthew tells us of the, of the fulfillment of this prophecy, he writes in chapter 4, verse 12 through 17, when he heard, that's Jesus, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. That's the area that we've been speaking about. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them light has dawned. Jesus is the direct fulfillment of this prophecy and what, what God did to bring contempt and judgment by leading Assyria, using Assyria to, to uh, invade Israel. He then turned to glory. He turned and used for His own glory. And it, it says in verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Out of this region originates the, the, the glory of God's work on the earth. I saw a t-shirt just the other day when I was out at dinner with, with, uh, with Matt and Amy and we were walking around five pound apparel. And, and as we were walking around, there's this, this shirt there that says, uh, Springfield is the epicenter of awesome. I think that misses the point a little bit, but, but what I think we could say is that Galilee, is the epicenter of what should give us awe. God worked in human form, in tangible ways, in, in, in Christ Jesus, originating at that point and spreading out from there. He chose us to be His epicenter of awesome. Verse 2, the, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the, in the land of deep Darkness on them, light has shone. They, they didn't originate the light. It's not like they figured out how to, how to light a torch and that they invented fire. It, it's not, it's not the, the, the result of their work. It's, it's simply seeing it. It's, 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 it's completely external to them. It's, it's completely independent of them. It's shining upon them. And all they can do is realize it. All they can do is enjoy it. All they can do is see it. This is not from them. It's not from us. You, he says, he now turns and he's been speaking about God in third person. Then he turns now and he begins to speak about him in first, speaking to him directly. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they receive it. It's just like the farmer at the end of his harvest when he gets 20 bushels instead of 10. Who's not excited? I mean, how, how many people have done gardens in their backyard and they come in and all of a sudden they got these cucumbers that are just flowing out of their ears and they're like giving them away and wow, I had a great year. That's what God is doing. He's ending war. But, but look at how He's ending it. We see it in verse 4. You have broken as on the day of Midian, he says. And he's, he's referring back to Gideon 
And Gideon is one of my favorite judges. I think it's because growing up, in, I never heard about Gideon. I never heard the story of Gideon in Sunday school. It was like the first time I ever heard of Gideon when, it was when I sat down and read the book of Judges myself. And, and I like immediately identified with Gideon because Gideon's got all of these self-esteem issues and he just doesn't think he's ever good enough. And he's always, he's like comparing himself to everybody else. And I was like, Oh, I feel like that most of the time, you know, and he didn't ever really trust God completely. He's always like, he's like testing God. And then, and then when God proves after a couple of tests, yeah, I'm telling you to do this. Gideon gets up and does it. And then God says, listen, go down and listen to these armies as they talk about you. But if you're fearful, bring somebody with you. And he doesn't go by himself because he doesn't completely trust God at this point, but he's fearful and he brings a friend with him and he shows up and he hears what God's going to do. See, that's me. But God used him for a powerful thing. Do you know the story of Gideon? The weakest man from the weakest tribe of the weakest family of Israel. Gideon was used of God to to relieve the oppression, to relieve Israel of the oppression of the Midianites. He accumulated, after realizing that God had called him to do this work, he accumulates a, an army of 32,000 people. Like He's like, hey, we got to go to fight. we got to go to war. we got to take care of this. God's called me to do it. Come with me and get it done. And 32,000 dudes stand up with him and say, all right, we're going to do it. And God says, that's too many people. I'm sure Gideon in his mind, are you sure it's enough? God's like, you know, you go and tell them if anybody is quaking with fear, if anybody's trembling with fear, tell them to go home. 22,000 people leave. I, I can't imagine what he's dealing with in this, at this point. You know, I mean, I, riddled with struggles within his own heart. And God said, that's still too many. 10,000 people is too, too many? So he sends him to bring them to drink water. And and after it's all done, he's left with 300 men to fight the Midianites. You want to know what his battle plan was? What God had told him to do? Bring trumpets and jars of clay and torches. What? What? So Gideon gathers and he he divides his his 300 men into groups of 100 and they surround the camp. They gather and they blow their trumpets and they crack their jars and God fights on their behalf. You see, the reason it was too many people is because God knew that if if that many people went to war, they would take the credit themselves. This is a work that God is doing. This is a work that only God can accomplish. Your joy, our joy, our happiness, the end of, of strife and gloom and anguish and difficulty. It, it, it is only by God's hand that it can come to be. And how can it come to be? How can He make it happen? He doesn't send a, a mighty warrior. He doesn't raise up another judge. He doesn't bring us back to Gideon and say, here's your man. He says in verse 6, for to us a child is born. To us, a son is given. It's a gift. Again, this is God's work. 
It's Him giving you a gift. It's Him giving the world a gift, us a gift, His people a gift. The baby is a gift from God, and it is through Him that God intends to accomplish these promises. I, I don't know of an event in our lives that we tend to think of as joyous as the birth of a baby. We get so excited about this. It's, it's so happy. But some of those babies don't grow up so great, do they? They cause a lot of strife and they give us a lot of difficulty. Some of those babies grow up to do some pretty bad things. But, but this, this, this is a baby who's going to bring joy because of who he is. Wonderful counselor. He speaks truth. He has everything to say that's worth hearing. He's the source of all wisdom and insight and understanding. He's the one that we should be listening to. Mighty God. I love, I love the perspective of Jesus as mighty God. And, and, and you can, some people would argue that this is making him divine or, but in chapter 10, Isaiah uses the exact same language referring to God. So we, we see that there's, it, it's in the same context. It's in the same, same, uh, overall, uh, overarching storyline. We can see that the, the, Isaiah is saying this is God. And then we see Jesus, whose work began at Galilee, beginning to demonstrate his power over creation. He, he is power over sin and sickness. He made, he made sick people well. He, Cleanse, he, he healed lepers. He forgave sin. He had power over Satan and demons. They obeyed him. They couldn't do anything but what he told them to do. They had to ask him permission to, to do things. His power over creation is his, his apostles with him, following him, and seeing him work, and, and not really knowing what he's fully capable of in a boat on a sea in the midst of a storm, scared to death because they think they will die. And he stands and he commands the waves to still and the wind to calm. And they are blown away. Who is this that even commands the world, the, the creation? His power, he is mighty God. He's everlasting Father. He is Prince of Peace. He is, uh, his reign of peace will increase and last forever. His throne fulfills the prophecies and covenants that God made with His people, especially to His, specifically in this context with His, with His servant David. His reign will bring justice and righteousness and it will be eternal. His name is Jesus. And he is the, he, he came, Jesus came that he might reveal God's glory and provide our joy. This is what Isaiah is telling us is coming. This is what Isaiah is telling us is happening. He says, this is what was in this time past. This is what had happened, but this is what God is going to do. And, and, and he's referring, I think, specifically to the, to the birth of Christ, to the birth of the Savior, and the work that he's going to do that, that extends out from there. And so now we don't look on that as a future event. We look on it as a past event. We remember it at Christmas. Every Christmas we gather and remember that God took on flesh, dwelt among us. And worked power for us. He came and he did this work that he might reveal the glory of his Father and thereby provide our joy. What do we do now? 
What do we do? Turn to Jesus for your joy. Do you know that as important to God as His glory is, is your joy? Do you know that? Do you believe it? Peter writing to the church, suffering and scattered, he says, though you have not seen Him, that's Jesus. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. See, we're not waiting on joy. It's ours to have as we think of Jesus, as we pursue Jesus, as we turn and put our attention and our focus and our pursuit on Jesus. Our joy is connected with Him. So it's time, brothers and sisters, to quit settling for for less. It's time to quit looking at entertainment as a source of happiness. It's time to quit looking at money and, and circumstances and relationships as if they will be the source of our happiness. He can use those things. Don't misunderstand me. Those things are not in, in, in of themselves useless to Him. But they will never be the source. You see, we want joy. I, I don't think there's a person in this room that doesn't desire to be happy. The only way you'll get it is by turning to Him. So some of you here today, Christians, some of you here today are feeling let down or feeling at a loss because you've put too much hope, too much expectation, too much faith in some event, in some circumstance, in some earthly thing. Turn to Jesus. And some of you, some of you are here that you may never have realized that the light is shining on you. Open your eyes from what was contempt God has brought glory. In the midst of darkness, He is shining His light. And this morning, He is shining it on you. You have an opportunity, maybe for the first time in your life, to turn and trust Jesus. He is your only hope. He is your only way. If you will ever know the happiness that God has for you, it will be through Him. And finally, what would we do? Tell others about this joy. There may be no more worshipful experience, no more opportunity, no greater opportunity we have in this life now to know joy here and to express His glory. To, to tell one another about it. To get together and celebrate it. To speak of it to one another. To encourage one another with it. To, to remind one another of it. To, to present it to one another. And then together to turn around and make sure that the world hears of this joy that's available in Christ. You see, we, we often look at, at, the, at the mission of the church and as the, as, the, um, as the evangelistic efforts of the church as something we got to do. But thank God He is pursuing this with zeal. 
And because of what He's done, we can pursue it with that same zeal, with that same enthusiastic passion. We get to tell others of something they long for. In Christ will be your joy. Because it's there that you'll find God's glory. There is no other way. There is no other source. There is no other chance. So make sure other people know. Let's pray. Father, I am thankful. We are grateful. Grateful for Your Word. The Word that You spoke through Your prophets and through Your uh, through Your people that we now know of the work that You are doing. We now know of the of of the opportunity we have to be overwhelmed, to be, to be ultimately happy. Even in the midst of difficulty, even facing struggles and trials and, and, and problems, Peter's able to say, Father, Peter's able to say to these people that, that they are experiencing joy. That's what we long for. Would you show us now what's in our way? Would you show us now what we need to turn from so that we can turn to your Son? Would you shine the light of your glory into the darkness of our gloom? That we may know your joy. And we may experience it in an abundant way while we wait for his return. It's all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.